Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. On this episode of Big Boys Don't Cry, we discuss the film Marie Antoinette, starring Kirsten Dunst. If you have not seen the film, you can still enjoy the podcast, but if you do proceed, just be aware that some elements of the plot will be spoiled for you. Also, this episode sadly doesn't have as good an audio quality as some of the other ones because there was a bit of um, distortion on the recording of Rob's voice, so I had to use the backup recording. So you can still hear both of us totally fine, it just might not be as crystal clear as you used to. Enjoy. Are you you're good now on the single double Johnston equation? I am, yeah. Cool. Yeah, good. that sound. I'm getting. I'm getting the single Johnston. Excellent. How was your day? It's been all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, just been at work, and then um, I decided over the weekend that I was going to rewatch all of the um, Friday the Thirteenth movies. Oh yeah, I think I saw one of those ones. Um, yeah, so I've been I've been uh, rewatching them. I just finished watching the first one. Um, not as good as I remember them being. Oh no, really? Not very scary. Quite slow paced. Bit wooden. That's uh, always something of a letdown, isn't it? When you you remember something fondly and it doesn't age well. I mean, we've we've talked about. I, I guess that was kind of the conclusion we came to about she's all that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it's it's not that movie hasn't aged that well, but yeah, I I, I was never a huge fan of the Friday the Thirteenth films. I was always a bigger fan of um, of uh, like Nightmare on Elm Street, for instance. Or yeah, like Scream, which is kind of like a subversion of all of those slasher flicks. Friday the Thirteenth. Um, yeah, so what I'm hoping is Jason yeah. of Freddy versus Jason. Is that right? It is. Yes. Yeah. Although in the first movie, it's not actually Jason who does the killing; it's his mum. Oh, okay. Who, uh, Jason's Jason has drowned in uh, a summer camp. Mum is now getting revenge. However, many years later, oh, it's like it's a Grendel type situation. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Grendel's mother. Um. But then after that, they realised, oh wait, let's just bring this kid back who's supposedly dead, and then get him to kill all these people. Yeah. Why not? Um. That's classic yeah, so, so what I'm what I'm hope, what what I'm hoping is that as I watch all of the films back through, they have this reputation as getting progressively worse, but I'm hoping that they'll get progressively more entertaining as they go. I hope so. As long for your for your own sanity, I hope so. Yeah, so so like the first ones are supposed to be more sort of like tense slashes and more like horror. And then sort of as the series goes on, everyone says like, Oh yeah, well they just get really silly. And it's like, well that's what I want out of this now. Yeah, I want, I want silliness. When when a film a horror film is described as a slasher, you kind of expect a bit of silliness, don't you? Or at least I do, with my my limited knowledge of horror films. Yeah, so so originally slashers were all very sort of like, well, not serious per se, but had more of a sort of like nasty edge to them. Um, although the first um, the first real slasher um, is a movie called Black Christmas. Um, and that is very darkly comic in, at times, but also very disturbing at the same time. And it kind of 
Black Christmas is a really interesting film because it kind of it, it arrived before the likes of Halloween and Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and all of that lot. Um, and it sort of it did things and the most effective things in it looking back are the things that then didn't become standard parts of the slasher horror genre. Um, so like at the end, they think they've pegged the guy who's doing all the murders, but it's revealed right in the last scenes of the movie that they haven't. And in fact, the killer who's still unknown is just still lurking in the house. Ah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really, yeah, it does a lot of very clever things, that movie. Um, when did it come out? So yeah, so uh, that was back in mid-70s. Oh, right. It got an awful remake a few years back. As um, to have all the classic Christmas horror films, right? Yes, all, all the classic horror movies now have had, have had remakes. Um, but it was directed by Bob Clark, who um, his two like most famous movies really are Black Christmas and then A Christmas Story. Oh right, yeah, I'm the, aware uh, of that one. Yeah, so it's like sort of they've gone from really really gritty nasty horror movie to a sentimental comedy. He also directed Porky's. The oh yeah, comedy movie. <laughs> we should talk about that sometime. And and he also did Baby Geniuses and Baby Geniuses Two. Not seen either of those. They they they're, they're something special. They're about a bunch of intelligent babies, basically. Um, that could be about and, us yeah, then. They're, they're pretty much, yeah. So so it's a really interesting career, going from sort of real highs to real lows. Um, so it's a fascinating career, Bob Clark. Cool. But he's not a baby. He's not a baby, no. You're a baby. Ryan Gosling would <laughs> Ryan Gosling would not be able to go up to Bob Clark and go, You're a baby. <laughs> You're a baby. <laughs> Every time he says it, it gets progressively longer. And eventually it's like, You're a baby and then he's just fading into the background. If I had the time or the inclination, I would make some kind of YouTube video where that happens. But there are, as I found out this week, because I've been making the sensation supercut. So cutting together all of the bits from our podcast where we talk about our um, our, our film, forthcoming film project, Sensations, the genesis of which was way back in episode one. And we've cut together a lot of ideas. In short, Adam Richman and Guy Fieri as love rivals. What more do you need? But as I found, there's been a, a lot of um, people on YouTube who've done a lot of videos of Guy Fieri where they've just messed around with the sounds of the song where he says Flavor Town. And then each time it adds another voice and another voice and another voice until the chorus effect becomes so overwhelming as to explode the brain. It's well worth watching. <laughs> if you like brain explosions, get on that. Yeah, which I do. So um, speaking of yeah, horror, we should um, say that George A. Romero just died. Um, and the, yeah, I know. I, as I said, I'm not a huge horror, f- horror fan, but I saw the odd bit of his work back in um, back when we were at Exeter. There used to be like a horror film type night upstairs at that bar. What was it called? At the top of the high street where they would like show films and then have a DJ upstairs. Um, I can't even remember what it was called. But my um, my good friend Matt Stocks used to run a night up there where they would show a horror film and then have like a really wicked DJ night afterwards. Um, and I can't remember what the place was called, but I saw one of his films there and it was really good. Oh, wasn't it like the um, the the Orange Room or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Or it, maybe it was called something yeah, before it was I, called I, that. Yeah, I can't remember the exact name, but I know the one you mean. Yeah. And it had like a weird stage downstairs where 
you sometimes would do a, sh- a gig, but they wouldn't move the tables out of the way. So you'd get that kind of cabaret bar vibe when you're trying to play a show that never really works unless you're doing either stand-up comedy or lounge jazz. Yeah, I remember playing there, um, doing an acoustic set with a female singer I knew at the time. And um, it kind of works when you're doing that kind of thing because it's that much more laid back. But um, yeah, doing like full band shows must have been a bit of an old experience. Yeah. And it was like he had the kind of two doors. So you'd come in one door, go around and the stage was there and then you go around to go out the other door. So people sort of perennially wondering and not Mm. paying attention Mm. to you. Fuckers. (laughs) How dare they? (laughs) We should always be the center of attention wherever we are. But yeah, rest in peace, George A. Romero. That's a shame. Yeah, directed some absolute great movies, and not just when it came to um, came to the Night of the Living Dead. Although that's what he's most known for. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead. Yeah, I've seen Dawn of the Dead, but not Day of the Dead. I think. Day of the Dead is a very interesting one. It feels quite different from the other two. Um, where it's um, it's all about sort of like this military bunker type science lab thing. It's really interesting. You seem to sort of move between different sort of ideas within the same world, and each of them felt very different. Um, so it's quite interesting. And um, and then he did he did a few other very good movies as well. So he did the Crazies, which is kind of like a a slight play on the idea of um of the zombies and kind of like a prototype version of 28 days later all right where this virus comes out and it starts turning people mad and they start becoming homicidal and just start killing people um and that's yeah that's very it's a very interesting movie and then then that had a pretty good remake actually a, a few years ago um and he was he was um the director of um, the creep show horror anthology as well, which is great sort of horror comedy uh, sort of spin, uh, which was all written by Stephen King as well. And that's oh, a really, cool. that's a really good little horror. Anth- Love me um, some so, yeah, Stephen so King a, as well. He had a lot of successes. He had a lot of successes outside of, um, outside of um, the night of the living dead. Um, I'm just looking at him on IMDb to see if I missed off any particularly, uh particularly interesting things that he directed back in 1974 he directed a documentary about oj simpson called juice on the loose <laughs> juice on um, the loose <laughs> okay this, this is be- this is before he potentially allegedly committed murder um it's all about his career as a as a running back yeah because he was a famous <laughs> so, football man american football, football man that's then then a up-and-coming actor um i don't know if we've mentioned it on this podcast before but he was considered for the role of the terminator but we um, was turned down for the role because did not that's really interesting no so he, he was considered for the role of the terminator but he was turned down because um they decided that nobody would believe that oj simpson was capable of such stone-cold killing <laughs> no way yeah, and th- and that's that's why they turned him down. That is an incredible um, irony. Yeah, it's it's horrible. <laughs> it's really really horrible. But yeah, it's um. That's it's so ironic that it should have been in the Alanis Morissette song. 
it is more ironic than anything in that Alanis Morissette song. It actually is, yeah. I'm trying not to think about the lion rain on your wedding day in that one. Is is that in in case it then causes rain on your wedding day, or yes. just the sheer lack of lack of irony? In well, but both are quite distressing to me, actually. To be fair, <laughs> although actually it won't matter if it rains on my wedding day because we've got we have none of it needs to be outdoors. But there is a giant chessboard in the garden, so if it rains, we're not going to be able to play giant chess. Wizard chess. Oh, okay. Yeah, do we get hideously injured if we lose? Yeah, get maimed. Cool. I'm all over that then. Yeah, so you you bet you best bring your best game. I will. I will. Cool. Have you have you heard that the new Doctor Who is a woman? Yeah, I'm I'm outraged that this alien. I mean, what what um, is next? Who... What is next? I, I tell think the next step, which is chilling, chilling, is that there's going to be real women doctors, not just <laughs> fake alien doctors who happen to be women. Yeah, and I mean that—that that is something that really scares me. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. Um, next, there's going to be like a woman as James Bond, and then a dog as the next Terminator. You know, it's just—it's all downhill from here. You know, the next Friday the Thirteenth is going to have a lampshade <laughs> as Jason. That's where we're <laughs> heading. That's even more terrifying than any of the actual horror movie shit. It's true. It's true. That that's where we're going with this with this political correctness malarkey. Yeah. Um, the the one thing that I have seen mentioned a lot is um, is oh well, what's this going to mean? Does this mean that there's going to be a a female James Bond? I'm like, well, I don't think that would necessarily happen because whether you think it's a um, a real character name or whether you think it's a sort of code name. Um, it would be very hard to have a female James Bond because then whoever's holding that name, it would be like, why are you called James? Yeah, but I, I think Which the estate, the estate difficult. of um, Ian Fleming and a lot of the people who make James Bond are probably still a lot more overtly sexist than the people who make Doctor Who because James Bond is is a misogynist, you know, as part as part of the deal. Yeah. So I think it would be harder to have a female Bond, but you could still pull it off, I reckon, if you had the right person. Um, what? what... What's very interesting is that the way that Daniel Craig has played Bond in his most recent movies is sort of like showing that misogyny and that sadism and that almost sociopath nature to him kind of full on without making it, trying to make it appear cool. So he's an incredibly broken individual, particularly in films like Skyfall. Um, and that's kind of part of what makes those movies so much more interesting some, than some of the Bond movies that have gone before is that like, you see this darker side to him. But one thing that I'd like to see instead of a female James Bond is like, just make a spy movie about a female spy who's a badass. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a franchise. In fact, I reckon if you could do a Bond-esque, really smart spy film with a woman, it could create a whole new franchise that could blow everything else out of the water. And, and there have been a couple of movies that have got there or that have nearly got there. So I don't know if you've ever seen the Melissa McCarthy movie Spy. No, you mentioned this before and I said that I yeah. still haven't gotten around to seeing it. But obviously I love her. We're huge fans of her on this podcast. It's so wonderful send up of the spy genre in general. And it's actually a really entertaining spy movie in its own right. Excellent. Um, and there's another there's another movie coming out with um, Charlie Theron which seems to be trying to go for that similar kind of thing. 
cool like as her. james bond where she's sort of like a yeah where she's a i've forgotten what it's called um atomic blonde it's called and she's this good name like spy who's going to do something spy um <laughs> he's gonna spy on you <laughs> as as they do and i'm not sure how much of it is going to be kind of like a um let's look at charlie Theron being all sexy and how much of it is going to be a clever sort of like female fronted spy movie but, yeah um but i think that might have some potential it's got some it's got some good people in it it's got james mcavoy john goodman um so you know i think there's some there's some potential in there for that one excellent are you a doctor um, who fan i've never i don't think we've ever discussed it but i i'm completely indifferent lukewarm doctor who. i think i've watched the odd sort of five to ten minutes here and there when it's been on tv and tried to get into it but i just couldn't but i've never sat down and really like watched it properly so i think if i did maybe i'd get into it but i always think that it looks a bit cheesy i i'm the same way i i kind of watched it vaguely when i was a kid when there was repeats on bbc and kind of thought nothing much of it it's just kind of part of my sort of media consciousness as a kid thinking oh it's doctor who it's all right it's a bit old um, and then they brought it back with Christopher Eccleston, and I watched that series and quite enjoyed it. I thought it was quite clever. I liked the characters, um, and I think they did quite a lot of good work with it. Um, but then I found that over the course of the David Tennant run, the plot started getting more and more convoluted all the time. Um, and so it became eventually kind of impossible to to follow um <coughs> like if you weren't watching bless you <laughs> mercy um if you weren't watching every single episode i found it getting increasingly more impossible to follow and it's had exactly the same curse as um uh as the sherlock series again could never um, get into that either Benedict. yeah and i think they're they're done by the same people they're done by stephen moffat yeah mark gatiss and um and yeah i can't really i find that their plots are too deliberately convoluted for their own good right um they're trying to make things more clever than they need to be because in its heart doctor who is a kids show yeah it doesn't need to be ridiculously complex it doesn't need all of these huge overarching stories it needs cybermen turning up fucking shit up doctor who turning up doing something clever stopping the cybermen um, whereas I find that with ev- pretty much everything I've seen that has that Stephen Moffat's been involved in um, is kind of has the same problem. So he also wrote the screenplay to the Tintin movie that Steven Spielberg directed. Yeah, which I must say I did quite enjoy as um, as a Tintin fan a big Tintin fan appreciating a new interpretation of it. So I'm not precious about the source material. I didn't love it, but I appreciated it as a, a modern and refreshing adaptation. But it also had the hand of Joe Cornish on it. And also, was Edgar Wright involved in that somehow as well, maybe? Producer yeah, or so something? Joe Cornish and Edgar Wright were also working on the screenplay. Yeah, so I think um, that probably so saved it of... from the bad influence of Stephen Moffat. Yeah, so, so Moffat comes up with great sort of like initial story ideas um but then keeps adding and adding and adding to them and i think that kind of came through a little bit in tintin because i'm a big tintin fan as well 
Um, and again, Tintin doesn't necessarily need to be particularly complex. It has these nice little mysteries that are meant for kids. Yeah. And that kids can then unravel. Um, and I think Tintin went a little bit too far towards a big overarching mystery. Um, I'd agree with that. So, yeah. yeah so I think really what I'm... I think it's great that they've got a female doctor, but the biggest problem with that show is that they need to sort out what's going on with the plot. Yeah. Take it back to basics. And then I'll be, I'm, I'm probably going to watch it just because I think the more viewers that this gets, the angrier that the daily mail is going to get. This is true. Yeah. Um, and all so the out of spite, I'm... cry wanking man boys can continue crying their tears because it gets more viewers. <laughs> yeah. I could, I could support that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the the angry angrier those people get, then the better. So even if it's crap, I might just pop it on in the background so that it counts as a view. Yeah, put it on with the sound um, off. Yeah, exactly. Do What's your own job. Something better. I'll d- dub some Guy Fieri dialogue <laughs> over the top of it. Um, what I'd like to see though is something um, done with with female Doctor Who, where people keep people keep saying that she's not a doctor all the way through every so often there's just some sexist dickhead who's like oh is there a doctor around here yeah or i'm looking for a doctor i'm looking for the doctor that kind of stuff yeah um which i'm sure they'll they'll pop in a couple of cheeky jokes like that just to sort of like kind of toy with the sexism that's kind of pervaded this choice i'm sure it will it'd be hard to resist that if you're writing it wouldn't it Yeah, so I think, yeah, that, as long as they've got some stuff in there just to... Because they've already put the knife into into sexist dickheads. Now they've just got to turn it a little bit and just make them a little bit more suffer. So make them suffer a little bit more. Um, and then I'll be, I'll be keen with what they're doing. Definitely. But we aren't here to talk about Doctor Who. We're here to talk about another historical figure. Marie Antoinette. Who did not time travel, as far as I know. <laughs> although, Unfortunately, although there not. are there, there are elements of time travel in in Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, really, aren't there? Are you about to give me some kind of mad time travel theory about how this film fits together? No, no, I, I'm not. I was just referring um, to the the interesting soundtrack choices that they made. Yeah, the sort of the somewhat incongruous elements of soundtrack and dialogue, which I I gather I didn't I don't remember this film even coming out or reading anything about it at the time, but it came out in 2006, and I gather from reading just a little bit around it that there was a lot of criticism of the the music choices and the stylistic choices and a lot of things that were seemed to be anachronistic. And I actually really liked those choices. I liked the the sort of often punky music on the soundtrack, use of, you know, classic sort of filmy songs like I Want Candy and stuff, um, especially the, the punky opening title sequence as well with her just kind of lying there um, and all the names flying around. I thought it was great. I really, I really enjoyed that aspect of it, actually, because I felt like that showed you from the word go that it wasn't taking itself too seriously. But it's um, because it's like it's in full period dress. And I think it won a, an Oscar for the costume design. But because everyone was dressed up like a period drama, but it immediately opens with that that music, you know that you're not getting yourself in for another period drama. Because I don't know about you, but for the most part, period dramas bore the crap out of me. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Apart from Poldark, obviously. 
yeah, I mean, I, I love a bit of handsome Cornish men cutting wheat and looking surly. <laughs> um, that that's what I live for. It's all about the wheat cutting. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I want out of life. So I'm going to cut some wheat. Yeah, and look rugged and handsome. But the the um, operative word there, I so suppose, I, is I, drama. I, actually, because it's this isn't really. Yeah. It's, it's is it a drama? Is it a comedy? It sort of flits around between the two, but it it. It uses the it has the visual stylistics and the expectation of it being a biopic of Marie Antoinette going into it that perhaps just contextually and paratextually, if you want to use a real proper highfalutin <laughs> word, that you, you expect it. There's there's something of an expectation there that it's going to be like a period drama because there's so much of that nonsense floating around that it from the word go, it tells you that it's not. And that hooked me right away. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. I'd even would have liked it to go further down the stylistic route than it already did, and I think it does a great job of it because it it does tell the story of Marie Antoinette, albeit with a lot of a lot of changes to historical acts. Yeah, um, but it does so almost in the framework of a high school drama. Hmm. Um. And it's and it works so well that way. So it's got this wonderful score of like late seventies and eighties tracks. Um, every time that you reach the bit where they uh, start playing um, the Cure, I'm just like yes, yeah, because um, Disintegration is one of the greatest albums ever recorded, um, and anything off that introduced into a film score is bloody phenomenal. Um, and so it's great that they managed to combine these things. And like, there's all these tiny little nods in there as well. Um, so like, you've got the soundtrack, you've got the dialogue, which all, which again feels kind of like a teen teen drama, teen comedy. Um, and like, there's all these little things in the background where there's like pairs of Converse shoes lying around and things yeah. like that. Um, that just kind of make it more than just a biopic. And like, I think it's really important that they made that change because. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that would have really loved to have seen a straightforward film about Marie Antoinette. And I'm not one of those people. I don't care. That give me something interesting. Yeah, me me neither. A hundred percent. I feel like, yeah, there probably is an audience of, of grannies and boring middle aged people who wanted that film, but someone else is gonna make it at some point, probably. And I actually I agree with you completely that I actually wanted it to go further. And just go full on like mental, just really, really mix it up. Take the idea of of Marie Antoinette and just completely run with it and go crazy. And actually the fact that it didn't, I think, eventually left me feeling a little bit cold at the end. But the the stylistic invention around it was enough to carry it throughout the film, I, I'd say. And it is actually based on the the book by Antonia Fraser. So to be fair, it seemed it felt like it had taken the events of the book and done them and done them in the right order and that kind of thing, whilst making a lot of stylistic departures and departing from historical accuracy and making no attempt to be historically accurate, I still wanted it actually to to just be a little bit more crazy because there were some scenes that did just feel a little bit like a sort of drab retelling, but with very, very nice costumes and punk music. Yeah, and, and yeah, I think like I don't I've not read the book, so I don't know how closely it follows that or and how much it plays with its own ideas. Um but I think there is this interesting cause cause the film's considered a bad movie by a lot of people. Yeah. Um and it stems from the use of all of these stylistic things to kind of take away from 
the hard history of it all. Um, and a lot of people weren't too happy that they kind of painted Marie Antoinette as a sympathetic character as well. Yeah. Um, but I think like there is this clash there, which I don't think is fully resolved between the historical and between the style. Um, and I think that's partly where it falls down for me. Like you said, you're left feeling a little bit hollow at the end of it. I feel um, like that was intentional, um, and, even though you do yeah. you do feel a bit hollow. I I felt like that was definitely it was trying to express the tension between those those two things and about how when you look my my understanding my limited understanding of Marie Antoinette and that period of revolutionary France is that there are so many conflicting accounts of um, the the royals and their actions and the political situation and how they handled the the bread shortages and issues like that and the, that kind of thing that it's actually very, very hard to know or one, one cannot ever know definitively, you know, how sympathetic you should be to Marie Antoinette and whether she really was the queen of debt and all these kind of things. So it kind of, it walks that line, I think, actually quite well and does provide a tension there that is true to how how we experience history, I think. But at the same time, it felt like it was just scene after scene after scene after scene after scene after scene of just bits from her life that might have been lifted from the book. And it actually, which in a way, is kind of a very, very accurate f- transposition of a, a non-fiction biography book onto the screen. Because a non-fiction biography book isn't going to have a real big, strong narrative that hooks you in and has the emotional pull because it's supposed to be a retelling of events. So it felt to me like a lot of disjointed scenes all strung together and that there wasn't much attempt to to have big narrative developments and peaks and troughs and jeopardy and that kind of thing. But then I, I realised that because it was based on that book, that maybe she was just trying to do it in that way. What do you think? Yeah, I think maybe. Um, and if that's what she she was going for, then that is a, a successful way of doing it. But looking at it from a pure cinematography, pure filmmaking perspective, I'm not sure whether that, choice necessarily works to captivate the audience and to allow them to understand what you're doing effectively um so it is a movie that's often considered as having style over substance um and i'm not sure how true i think that is i think like you said i think the style is the substance here um and and sort of people have said that it's kind of trivial trivializing the french revolution and trivializing the actions of marie antoinette and the death of the monarchy and everything like that um but i think one thing that i find very interesting about this movie is the way that it portrays the isolation that monarchs have Hmm. um and i think that's one of the most successful things of this movie is you never really see the revolution no. Um, at any point in this film it is entirely their little bubble um and that's i think an incredibly important part of why this movie works so well for me personally is you never see what's happening outside because she would never have seen what's happening outside not not to the extent that you need to to then be able to make any changes this is a this is a, a very young woman who got married off to someone who she didn't know and then had all of these huge decisions to make thrust upon her 
and thrust upon her husband, who again was not ready for the throne necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's interesting to look at it that way without any without these people having any real knowledge about how to manage a country, how to govern a country, and without any real knowledge of the people of the country. Um, and I think I think that's one of the things that Sofia Coppola did incredibly well in this film. Yeah, it's not just about the loneliness of the royal, but about the loneliness of the female royal as well, and p- particular to the time, but probably still applies now as well. But yeah, that was very, very apparent um, throughout the whole film. And the fact that it was from her perspective and that you you just see the, the revolution and stuff happening very, very occasionally in bits of dialogue or stuff off screen, I think that that was fine and that was good because that em- yeah it served to emphasise and it wanted you to think more about her and her experience and in the end, you thought maybe maybe she deserved it, maybe she didn't. It was kind of you didn't necessarily have to make up your mind either way, but you did feel sympathetic towards her and her her plight, I suppose. It's, and it, it's done. It was done visually throughout the film in lots of different ways. I mean, there are multiple scenes in which she ends up literally standing naked in front of a room of women, all peering at her, um, or trying to get her to do certain things. Or uh, sometimes it's women and men, and yeah. Like there's loads of scenes where there's people giving birth and the room is full of all the courtiers and that kind of thing. Again, I don't know if there's a historical precedent for that. But the idea that everyone is kind of looking on and expecting all of these things from you when you're so young, you don't really know what you're doing. That that did come across very, very well. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's it's like if you think about a modern comparison piece to Marie Antoinette, who would Marie Antoinette be today? She'd be like one of the Kardashians or something <laughs> like that, really. Yeah, that's our that's our version of young royals who played the role of these celebrities apart from they also had these ridiculously huge roles put on them in terms of managing countries and things like that. Um, And like the French revolution is very interesting. And like she did, uh, uh, Sophia Coppola did take a lot of liberties with the actual history of the situation with this movie, but I don't think it really, I don't think it really mattered in terms of the story she was trying to tell, which is a very personal story about Marie Antoinette. It's more about the emotion rather than the reality of the situation. Yeah, to say that um, it has to be about the French Revolution like, is, is is completely misunderstanding the point of the text. It's about her and about her life. But people, I think, find it very, very difficult to divorce her from the revolution and obviously rightly so because of the historical context. But to divorce her from that is a bold statement in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so this is a very, it's a very bold movie in general, I think. It's, it takes a lot of steps that a lesser director or a less um a director of less self-belief would not be willing to take um and it's part of the reason why it's such a captivating watch and such a fascinating thing to think about as well is regardless of whether you think marie antoinette is a good movie or not it certainly sets up a lot of discussion points in a way that very few movies do um and I mean, I, in case you can't tell, I really like this film. I think it's really good. Yeah, I thought so. Um, and it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting watch. Um, it completely throws out the window casting choices. It casts a load of people who you wouldn't expect to be cast in a film of this manner. Um, yeah. Throws out the window direction choices, soundtrack choices, thematic choices, um, and comes together to create this really fascinating look at... Um, at an 
an individual. Um, and again, it doesn't really paint her as sympathetic deliberately. It kind of lets you make up your own mind as to how far you think this version of Marie Antoinette deserved what happened. Um, and I say that like nobody deserves what happened to Marie Antoinette. No, of like, course. It's, 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 a, it's, it's an awful thing. And like, yes, the monarchy is, is a very, it's a very outdated thing. And they were, they were running France into the ground, but behind that stemming from that was mistrust of foreigners because she was Austrian mm-hmm. um, and mistrust of the role of women and things like that. So there's lots of there was lots of other things going on behind the hatred of Marie Antoinette, and it it played very similarly in a manner to the Russian Revolution as well. Was there was a lot of there's a lot of real world problems behind why the revolution took hold, but the focus of the problems were the individuals rather mm. than the system. And it just so happens that the systems toppled, but they didn't necessarily topple because people wanted the system to be overthrown, but more so that they wanted the individuals in charge to be overthrown and what they represented to be overthrown. Yeah, and you're right about the hatred of women as well, because so much of the historical documents from the time are sort of satirical pamphlets and articles and things all about her, which show a real kind of very regressive, internalised, horrible misogyny. Um, misogyny and and xenophobia all directed at her and that I think came across quite well in the film as well trying to examine it from her point of view in the um, the other courtiers and the woman who's the king's mistress um, and their sort of weird sort of rivalry spat thing and Marie Antoinette doesn't really seem to understand why this woman dislikes her so much and there's a real kind of high school bitchiness around those that that gaggle of women for want of a better word um, that I think showed that well and it showed her as being on the other side of that and kind of experiencing this misogyny rather than being the someone who brought it upon herself. It sent that up quite well, I thought, and made you made you think about that, definitely. Yeah, and, and it's yeah, it's it's great the way that it does that. Um because there was as there always is in cases like this, there was lots of allegations of infidelity and things like that. Um and uh yeah it's interesting the way that it all all plays out in this film where she does have affairs but it's all set up so that louis the 16th is actually gay yeah Um, (laughs) and so it doesn't really matter it's unlikely that he ever really cares um yeah she has a fling with the sexy swedish count um, and you don't really seem to mind a lot a lot of her biographers do believe that that happened uh but it's it's impossible to prove but he was great Although he had a kind of big ponytail that reminded me a lot of um, Luke Evans as Gaston in the recent Beauty and the Beast film, which we talked about. <laughs> so when he was, there's, there's a hilarious scene in Marie Antoinette where he's riding away on a horse and suddenly there's like flames in the background for no reason. Um, and that really made me chuckle oh, right, because yeah. it reminded me of him as, of Luke Evans as Gaston. It's, um, it's Jamie Dornan, isn't it, who plays handsome? Yeah, that's handsome right. Man. He of Fifty Shades um, of Grey fame. Yes, and this and this was actually his first movie role. Really, Jamie Dornan. I was going to say that a lot of the people in role. this went on to do bigger and, and greater things after this, like people who are yeah, quite big a... names now, who perhaps weren't such big names in two thousand and six, like Tom Hardy, Jamie Dornan, Rose yeah, Byrne. It's got an amazing cast. 
at all, actually. Um, so shall we move on to talking about the cast of this film? Hell yeah. I just um, want to say how much I love Jason Schwartzman. I mean, he could be in, in anything <laughs> yes. and I would I would just love him. I just think he's wonderful. I mean, he's a really good musician as well. You know, he was the um, he was the original drummer in the band Phantom Planet who done the yes, theme so song that, for the actually. OC. Yeah. He wasn't in them when they did the OC yeah, song. California. California, here we go. But um, he makes music under the name Coconut Records, and it's really good. Did you um, ever see the show Bored to Death? No, I heard good oh, things about man, it. Man, I think you would love it. It is so good. It's, um, it's based on the sort of detective noir writings of Jonathan Ames, who I really, really like. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't read a lot of detective stuff, but his stuff seem- is a really kind of fresh, bold take on it. Um, and he kind of he writes himself as a character but always makes it like a really intense gross weird version of his life Um, and the show is based on that and um, Schwartzman plays him and Zach Galifianakis is the best friend and oh it's it's just brilliant it's absolutely brilliant you've got to see it but it it was incredibly underrated Um, so that really cemented Schwartzman as a great one of the true greats for me but he's obviously he's in every Wes Anderson film and he's really, really good in those and just yeah, everything he does is good. And and he's pinch he's he's pitch perfect as Louis the Sixteenth in this. There's this great scene in it, which I don't know if you you remember, but every time I watch it it makes me laugh. Where um he's playing like a shuffleboard game and he manages to get it down into the the top score thing and he gives this little sort of like jump dance of his little <laughs> shuffle yeah. shuffleboard thing. It's yeah, it's so funny. Um, I, I'd happily watch that on loop for about an hour and not get not get bored of it. Um, and and yeah, like the rest of the movie is really great. Like I think Kirsten Dunst, who doesn't get a lot of praise as an actress, I think she's really good in this film. Yeah, definitely. It's a very very difficult role to play for all the kind of historical reasons and the direction and stuff that we've discussed. And I thought her performance was was excellent. And she's a yeah, she's a brilliant actress who doesn't get the recognition she deserves for sure. Again, I think everything um, I've seen her in, she's been good. Yeah, yeah. I, I recently actually watched the the latest Sofia Coppola movie, The Beguiled. Yeah, I, I'm hearing um, good things. Which, Was it good? Which is very, really good. It's it's disturbing. Um, it is very funny as well. It's got this great sort of titillating black humour sort of like interspersed throughout the movie. And overall, the movie is quite dark. Um, and it's also got about five minutes solid all doing gardening and looking all rugged oh rugged gardening um, that's your, that's your favorite thing rugged, it is my favorite thing and yeah so if you like colin farrell with his shirt undone if you like disturbing movies if you like funny movies if you like stylistic movies um then yeah go and see the beguiled it's really good um very very good indeed um it's in fact a, a remake of a previous movie and the original one actually starred old Clint Eastwood. No way. A, my man, my grizzled boy Clint Eastwood. Yeah. I don't know how good his hair was in it. Um it might be worth I, I've not seen the original, so it might be worth going back and I'll report back on how, how good his hair is in that movie. Does he do a lot of, of weeping in the rain? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think there was there's not too much weeping in the beguiled. Oh, does does he ask does he ask anyone to fuck on the linoleum? Um, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, there's very little linoleum fucking. <laughs> there is a bit of fucking, but but not necessarily linoleum fucking. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear. Um it. so it's, and uh, and yeah, and Kirsten Dunst is in that and she's great in that as well. 
Um, if, like Sophia Coppola, I think, has got a real knack for picking out people who are great in the roles that she's writing for them and mm. she's casting for them. Um, you've got Rip Torn as as Louis the Fifteenth, best name ever. Um, everyone, everyone's favorite favorite angry weird uncle, Rip Torn. Yeah, is that his real name? Um, I don't know actually. Um, I do know that he was once arrested breaking into a bank, um, and his defense was that he was really drunk and he thought it was his house. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a go he's, at that one tomorrow. He's a, he he's a he's a troubled bloke, but in the best possible way. Um, he was born Elmore Rual Torn Jr. Okay, so, so this is real surname. Name. Get away with it. Um, yeah, and he's he's great, isn't he? Rip Torn. Yeah, brilliant. There's a really good scene when he's, they're he's going great. through the um. When the film, the first half of the film is all about her trying to get the king, get um, Louis the Sixteenth to have sex with her, um, and blaming the woman for the man's sexual problems over and over and over again, just to really emphasise the point about how kind of misogynistic and horrible it was back then. But um, there's a really great scene when yeah, it contrasts. You just you get about ten seconds of Rip Torn as the as the king sort of ravaging his lover and growling and. Um, you know, being very, very kind of visceral, and then it cuts to them just silently in bed, and Schwartzman's just kind of staring at the ceiling. And yeah, that was a very good, very good juxtaposition. It's it's great actually because there there's a few scenes where where Kirsten Dunst and Jason Schwartzman are in bed together, and he's sort of like, it's just like, oh, I'm too tired, or just gives her a little pat on the hand and then rolls over and goes to sleep and stuff like that. It's yeah, it's really. Or he's talking really about dark. keys because he loves keys and locks. Yeah, yeah. Um and then yeah, they've got all of these great little little minor minor roles from other actors and actresses. Um so Rose Byrne is in it mm-hmm. as some random duchess. Um and she's great because she's always great. Um got personal fan fave Danny Houston, who I don't know if you know, he played Marie Antoinette's brother. Oh right, yeah, yeah. I recognised him but I couldn't tell you from where. Um he's he's an actor that Casey and I absolutely love. He turns up in um, American Horror Story. Not seen that as well, and is wonderful. He's absolutely wonderful in American Horror Story, um, and just in general, he's a he's a great actor. I understand um, that Connie Britton then, is yeah, in that what... show, and I like her very very much. She's off of Nashville, which is yeah, I she... think one of my favourite shows and really really underrated. Although they've recently made a terrible 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 decision with killing off a very very major character which was obviously to do with their contract and whatever but anyway she's good she's really great and doesn't <laughs> get the the attention and praise she deserves yeah she's only in the first series of um of american horror story um american horror story is kind of like that you get these people that appear in one series and then go on to do something else and then sometimes they come back and do a little bit here and there um and yeah, it's it's one of those shows where each season is completely different. So it doesn't really matter if they recast, and it doesn't matter if they cast actors in a different role the next time round. Yeah, it's yeah, it doesn't really matter. Um, so it's very it's very well done. Um, and then we've got uh, we've got Tom Hardy, very mm-hmm. young Tom Hardy, being all Tom Hardy, which He's is good. which is always good. Can't yeah, can't can't get enough of Tom Hardy. He's always great. 
um and then steve coogan as well oh uh, yeah i love i mean i know i know a particular paddy fave he yeah he's, he's one of my all-time faves and um just think it's hard to think of a greater comic character than alan partridge or one who has endured and evolved in the same way as partridge really is just just such a genius character but um yeah, he's in he's in it quite early on, and even just the sight of Steve Coogan in period dress is funny in and of itself. And I think she Sophia Coppola realised that about a lot of the characters that there's kind of comic potential in the costume, as well as it being sort of punk and outrageous and making the the stylistic statement. Yeah, Steve Coogan's performance was very very funny, as really really deadpan, just kind of as the advisor telling her that she probably shouldn't do this. But yeah, it just felt like Steve Coogan in a wig having a laugh, and I enjoyed that very much. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things about this movie as well, is there's not too much of it that's laugh-out-loud funny. Um, But there's this kind of nice tone throughout where it kind of keeps up this kind of humorous side of it that sort of plays alongside the actual tragedy of what's going on and that you know is going to be the inevitable outcome of the whole movie. Um, and it's kind of it's got a kind of unique feel that I've not really seen in any other kind of film. And I think you're right, is that part of it was definitely down to the casting options. Yeah, I would not say that I lolled at any point, although I, I did find Steve Coogan funny and there were lots of bits that were funny. But I felt like it couldn't decide whether it wanted to, to be a drama or a comedy. And sometimes, very, very rarely, you can mix those two things and it can really, really work. But I don't think this film pulled it, pulled it off. Um, and it, it, was quite, it was quite difficult. It walked that line in a difficult way and didn't quite manage it. Um, but at the same time, it was still good and it was still captivating for all of the stylistic and, and, and really interesting reasons. It was such a fresh take that you didn't really mind because you didn't necessarily want it to to grab you in that way. But yeah, that there were some kind of moments where it was like it could have gone for much bigger, could have gone for bigger laughs for sure. But there were lots of little subtle comic moments like it kept coming back to scenes of um, Kirsten Dunst and Jason Schwartzman eating at a table and all eating different things and just kind of silently or maybe a couple of lines have passed between them and it's more decadent and more weird food every time and the food as well. They must have had some amazing food stylists on that as well as the costumes because it looked incredible but also disgusting. Yeah, it it reminded me of, you know, the fantasy meal that they have in Hook. Oh, yeah. It it made me think of that. Um, And yeah, it's, it's, yeah, there's some great design choices in this film overall, actually. It's a very, it's a very well put together movie when it comes to just the pure aesthetic quality of it. Yeah, for sure. That, that thing really, really carries it, which is, is an interesting choice to make. And I think if there were more films that did that, and that was more of an established thing in filmmaking, we might be discussing this in quite a different way. We might be comparing it a lot, but there's actually not much that you can compare it to without it being an unfair comparison because it is such an original and refreshing approach, I'd say. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing where I'd like to see more stories get told by directors who don't, who you wouldn't expect to tell them. So here you've got a great stylistic director and a great sort of low-key director in Sofia Coppola taking on this huge story and doing it in a really unique way. Um, equally, like, 
I'd really like to see Wes Anderson try and do a horror movie. Mm, yeah. Like, I think that would be really interesting to watch. Like, him trying to do scary would be would be fascinating. In the same way, like, um, I don't know if you saw the news recently, but Quentin Tarantino is apparently in developing a film about the Charles Manson murders. I and can't think of a film I would rather films. watch less than that. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I really, I find the, the story of Charles Manson very fascinating, and I've read Helter Skelter, um, and I'd really like someone to do a really good sort of, like, biopic or series about it. And my my dream was that we'd get the people who did the People versus O.J. Simpson mm. to then do the Charles Manson murders that because they really show. handled it. They handled that incredibly well, and I think they could handle the sensitivity of the subject, such as the Charles Manson murders, incredibly well too. Um, but instead, we're getting Quentin Tarantino, who's at his best when he's being stupid, violent, bloody, stylish, and that isn't going to match up with what this movie would like but what i would love to see quentin tarantino do one day is do a fantasy movie like him doing a conan-esque super violent silly 80s style fantasy movie i would watch that out of of morbid curiosity for sure but what i'd like to see tarantino do is to fall in the sea No, I really, I really, no, I really hate Quentin Tarantino. I just can't, I don't get it at all. Whatever it is oh, okay. that people like about his films, I just find them gratuitous and silly and stupid and boyish. Boyish in the worst possible way. Yeah, And I've seen a fair few of them. I've seen Reservoir Dogs. I've seen Kill Bill. I think, although to be fair, I haven't watched any of his films since I was probably in my teens when I think a lot of guys... We were about 14, 15, really, really liked it and was saying it was really, really good. And I was, I just kind of, I remember thinking that I was kind of intellectually above it even then because I was a pretentious dick. So maybe the fault is with me, but I've, I have found that all the praise of, of Tarantino seems to be praising him for being style over substance, which is the same thing that we're arguing Sofia Coppola's film here is not. Um, so perhaps I'm wrong about that. But yeah, I really don't get Tarantino at all. And I think that most of his work is pretentious, boyish nonsense. See, I I disagree. I think that it is... I think he as a person is incredibly pretentious. And I think he puts a lot more thought into what he's doing than comes across. And I know a lot of people love Tarantino for his, you know, su- his like, oh, my, oh, he's such a great director and he's got he's such a great writer and stuff like that. It's like, no, he's not. But he, he, what he's really good at is showing people getting shot in really f- like entertaining ways. Yeah. And that, that's why I watch Tarantino movies. They, they are style over substance, but they're in a way that I actually really enjoy. So Django Unchained is a great Western it's got lots of scenes of incredibly racist white people getting shot, and I'm totally on board with that. Oh, I could get behind that. Equally, Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards are great because it shows lots of Nazis getting killed. Inglorious you know, Bastards. Nothing, nothing to discuss. About. Yeah, Bastards. Um, and so I'd love to see him go down that route instead of he seems to be reverting to doing things about crime and trying to be witty. And like, I don't watch a Tarantino film for wit, I watch it for stupid, stupid violence, but done in an incredibly well put together way. 
Yeah. So give me a give me Lord of the Rings directed by Quentin Tarantino. Give me Conan Three directed by Quentin Tarantino. Maybe I want to see someone getting their head cut off by a barbarian. Maybe he could be the person to finally adapt the Wheel of Time into film. I would totally watch that. He would make even the most boring Wheel of Time books into something entertaining. <laughs> All fourteen of filled them. with violence. <laughs> yeah, it, it just be it just be like. It would just be like, and 14 years passed, and now we're going to get back to people getting their heads cut off. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's also got a weird face. He looks like someone shaved a duck, and the duck is not happy about it. <laughs> See, I think he's slowly looking more and more like a vampire. Yeah. He's got a touch of the Michael Gove about him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But yeah, if you've seen any pictures of him recently, he's looking more and more like a sort of vampire patriarch. Yeah. And so maybe that's what maybe that's what he's slowly turning towards. Yeah. Well, okay, you you need to you need to educate me and convince me on Tarantino then. The next time we get together, I'm willing to watch one of the films of his that you think is good, is really good and to explain to me why it is good. I'll sit. I'll sit you down with with Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained and tell you don't listen to what Quentin Tarantino says about his movie. Just listen to your heart and enjoy people getting shot. <laughs> listen to your heart and enjoy people getting shot. Wasn't that a famous song? I think those. Yeah, listen to your heart and enjoy people getting shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's got all the makings of a hit. Yeah, I'm I'm totally on board with that. But on um on the subject of Sofia Coppola, I think the only other film of hers I've seen was Lost in Translation, and I think I only ever saw about half of it, so I have no real recollection of it either, apart from the outline of Scarlett Johansson's bum in some pink pink knickers. So <laughs> I think <laughs> I um I need to do a bit more work on um watching Sofia Coppola's previous films as well. But I do, from, again, background research, I understand that people seem to take a bit of a dislike to her, so that makes me want to like her. It, it stems back to The Godfather. What is it with men and The Godfather? What is it with men and The Godfather? She is an actress in The Godfather 3, and she wasn't the first choice for the role, but she ended up getting it. And lots of people put the blame on her for The Godfather 3 not being very good. Ah, interesting. And... She's not very good in the movie, it's fair to say, but the problems with The Godfather 3 do not stem down just to Sofia Coppola being a not very good actress. Um, it, it runs much deeper than that. Um, and I think Marie Antoinette is kind of the thing that started the the kind of uh, dislike of Sofia Coppola again. Right. She gained a lot of ground back by releasing Lost in Translation. And people liked that movie a lot. Um, before that, she'd done the Virgin Suicides. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have the book of that and on then, my shelf yeah, and somewhere. Then out, and then out out came Marie Antoinette, and people were like, "What's this rubbish? Uh, why is it not a proper story about Marie Antoinette and about the French Revolution?" <laughs> I like blah, that blah, voice. Blah, blah, blah. That's why, the same voice of the men they, who why... are currently cry wanking about there being a female doctor. Same <laughs> voice. Why, why is there all these 80s songs in this movie? Why aren't they playing historically accurate music in this film? I don't like it. Yeah, it oh. should all be harpsichords. Me. 
Although I did notice I at one point when they go to like the dance party, um, it's there's um, it's Hong Kong Garden by Shoesy and the Banshees, and it starts on the harpsichord and strings and then goes into the real thing. Oh, it's great! I love it. Yeah. And that was there's lots of great little moments like that. Um, if if, there, if there's one thing I'd want out of this movie though, it's that they pushed it even further so that like everyone who's got a musical instrument in this movie is just replaced by a keytar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there weren't enough guitar dance party scenes, and I mean that has knocked a couple of points off this movie for me. Yeah, um, yeah. Apparently, when this film came out at Cannes, it was booed by a lot of French journalists. But apparently, booing is a lot more common on the continent in cinemas, which I could get behind. I like a bit of good booing. Yeah, I think it had a quite mixed uh, reaction. So lots of people loved it, and lots of people hated it. Yeah. Um, a bit like uh, Nicholas Wendling Refn's movies that always seem to get that kind of polarizing reaction when they're played at film festivals. Nicholas, who? A uh, guy who directed Drive. Oh, right. Yeah. Not Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. <laughs> what else has, has he done, the man who did Drive? Oh, the guy who did Drive, um, he did. Uh, a recent movie that I think I've mentioned on this podcast. Um, oh, what's it called? The Neon Demon. Oh. Uh, allegory for for making it in the creative industry. Yes, you did mention that. That sounds fashion. really good. It's it's kind of shit, but it looks really nice. So watch it. <laughs> and and I think that's one of the one of the problems with a lot of his movies are that they're taken at the value of being a big movie rather than taking up the value of being an art house movie. So like the neon demon and only God forgives are two are the two movies he's released since drive. Oh, that's also Ryan and, Gosling. Isn't um, it? Yeah. And both of them, people went into them thinking that they were going to have a major plot that you could follow quite easily. Um, uh, like drive did. Um, but actually they're very much art house films. And it's more sort of like about the themes and about the direction and about the soundtrack and stuff like that. Um, Only God Forgives is incredibly boring. It's the most boring movie I've seen where a man gets his hands chopped off. Oh no, not a surely a Ryan Gosling film can't be boring. He doesn't really do a lot in it apart from stand around looking a bit glum. No. Um, it, it's it, and it's all about this kind of like. Um, immortal-ish police detective who loves karaoke and loves chopping off people's hands. It's a really odd film. It's incredibly slow. It's very pretty to look at and also incredibly violent. It's it's interesting. I don't think I'd ever watch it again. Um, but apart from that, um, Nicholas Winding Refn, he's done uh, Bronson. Not heard of um, that. Which is the, the movie... It's the movie about Charles Bronson, the most notorious criminal in the UK. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that was sort of like the breakout movie for Tom Hardy that sort right. of really cemented his place at the top table. Um, and that's a great film. That's really, really good. Um, and uh, he did the Pusher movies, which oh, I've yeah. not seen, but I've heard good things about. Um, so, yeah, he's a really interesting director and he's done lots of quite different things. But his best works are the ones where there's some kind of narrative that he can call back to so drive was based on a book bronson's based on the real life of the person um so that kind of cement them more in place as a narrative 
And then he can build his incredible direction around them. Whereas a lot of the other ones, it's kind of like him coming up with something and then using the direction to push it. And a lot of people don't really understand it because they're quite, they're high budget for art house movies. Right. And people expect more of them than simply look at this. It looks pretty. Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Good. That's what I want. (laughs) Yeah. That's not enough for me either. Unfortunately. Yeah. Even if it is um, Ryan I can, Gosling I can ha- presenting such an elegant package. I can I can handle um art house films and I can handle that kind of thing. Um but it's one of those things where you have to be prepared before you go into it to this is what you need to expect. Don't expect to understand this. Don't expect to be particularly entertained by it. But just try and look at it and think that it looks pretty. Yeah. Cool. So one other thing I wanted to say about Marie Antoinette was I really like that they made a joke out of the let them eat cake thing, which obviously, as everyone knows, is is a cliche, but as a mistranslation and she never actually said that or it was misattributed to her or whatever. And it's like um, there's a fake report and she says she says it. And then it's like cuts to a scene where it's like, I would never actually say that. That was quite that was quite a nice, fun little meta joke. I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, it's nice the way that they pulled that off. And that's another thing that makes it feel almost like sort of like backlash against celebrity. Um, and it almost feels like a lighthearted version of one of the scenes in William and Kate the movie where she's reading over all <laughs> these horrible things film. the press is saying about her. Yes, uh, and <laughs> she's reading over all these horrible things the press is saying about her and getting really upset, whereas Marie Antoinette is kind of like just kind of shrugging it off. But then eventually that would, of course, form part of her downfall going forwards. Although I think that quote was misattributed to her afterwards. Yeah. I think there wasn't any mention of that particular quote until years after she'd been killed. Yeah, that's right. Um, so again, playing with the actual historical events, but doing so in a way that makes an interesting point about the situation. Yeah, for sure. Although I have to say my, that my only my last thought really is that it wasn't romantic in the slightest. I think it's not not a romance in any way. And I'm not, I'm not going to debate with you about whether we should have talked about it or not or get into kind of categorizations or that kind of thing. But it was almost like an anti-romance because it was so much about her and her being alone and aloof and naked um, that it felt like the it was moving in the opposite direction of where you would want a romance to go about two people coming together even though she had, you know, various plots about the the sexual plot with Louis the Sixteenth and trying to get them to have sex and eventually have children, which they do, and then she does have sex with the the Swedish count and other people. All of that stuff just feels like another kind of little scene in her life, really. So it was almost it was almost anti romantic, and I sort of quite liked that quality of it. Yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons why I chose it for the podcast, other than William and Kate increasing my desire to see monarchs be killed um it was i thought you're gonna say william and kate was the pinnacle of romance and no film we ever watch can top that so we need now need to just watch anti-romantic films that yeah from now on it's just quentin tarantino movies um big boys yeah and and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to (laughs) big quints don't cry um, it's one of the reasons why I chose it is that it ha- kind of has this reputation as being a, f- uh, a movie that women should watch hmm. and it's like strong female lead not really is it it's, 
yeah, it's 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 a movie that everyone can watch and enjoy. It's not got anything. It's not got any real cliches that stick to a single gender movie in the way that Hollywood executives think that they should. Yeah, I particularly would like to recommend this to the man babies who are listening. Yeah, I mean, you get to see bad things happen to a woman, or they don't actually see them happen. No. It, so it walks that line quite well, actually. Relaxing. It's never it's never gratuitous with bad things happening to her. It's always kind of some bad things happened to her, but she was also bad in these ways. You you make up your own mind. Yeah, no, it's very well done. Um, I'd recommend that man babies jump down a well. <laughs> um, I'd be I'd be fully on board with that plan. Yeah, um, I hear that that feminists really want you to not jump down a well. Yeah. Um, and that by jumping down a well, it will actually create a negative reception for Doctor Who now that it's got a female. Yeah. So, um, so just you know, do that. I think that'll really help your cause to jump down a well. I heard that at the bottom of every well is an alternate universe where they've cast Jeremy Clarkson as the Doctor. Oh my god! Somewhere, if you believe in in parallel universe theories, somewhere there is a universe. Well, yeah, the, there's Clarkson is all of Doctor these Who. worlds are being created all of the time, aren't they? Yeah, there's one where he's Doctor Who, one where he's Bond, one where he's Marie Antoinette. <laughs> yeah, oh my god, yes. <laughs> to be fair, I totally watch Marie Antoinette with Jeremy Clarkson as Marie Antoinette. <laughs> that would Just be a bit amazing. Where he's naked, apart from. <laughs> from a, a old-fashioned stocking fanning himself <laughs> yeah cupping his man breasts to keep them out of view <laughs> oh. Oh. there is also an alternate universe where he isn't a complete and utter bastard but unfortunately that isn't the one that we're living in it's true it's true old, old Jezza. <laughs> let's Clarkson. let's not dwell on him no um so i've just got yeah i've got a couple of things to say but they're not related to marie antoinette so are you happy to give your 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 thoughts i'm on, having on the movie your yeah score? i would i would say yeah what's our what's our rating system for this how how it's how high to eat surely well i was gonna go with how how high in inches is your wig Oh, that's excellent. Okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, I. She would... was famous for having like three feet wig, three foot wigs, wasn't she, Marie Antoinette? Or wigs that were as tall I'm, as I'm going to outdo. I'm outdoing Marie Antoinette. Although you know, since this is France, I'm going to going to go to centimeters instead of inches. Yeah. And I'm going for seventeen centimeter wig out that, of twenty centimeter. Seventeen. That's that's quite high. That's 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 pushing mm. close to the top. That's good. I don't think I can be it as is. generous as that because I felt it did start to drag a little bit towards the end. And like I said, the disjointed nature of it did leave me just a little bit cold and wanting kind of there to be a bit more of a narrative thread or some more kind of jeopardy and emotional action. But at the same time, I did really enjoy um, how unserious, how little how it didn't take itself seriously and the protagonist seemed not to take herself too seriously either it was really unpretentious but in a kind of flamboyant pretentious way i, I love the way that it walked that line and the stylistic choices and it looked excellent and it, i it was really really super original um but i don't think i would watch it again i don't know maybe i would but i'm, I'm gonna give it 15 
So it was, which I think is still, so a, still quite a generous risk. score. Yeah. yeah. But there, yeah, there's a lot Definitely. to like it. And if you haven't seen it, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Watch it just for curiosity's sake. Yeah, for I sure. Think. Because there's, it's, there's no real movie quite like it out there. Yeah. And, and so no one's really made anything like it. it since. No, no. Cool. So what, what else have you got to say then? You can, you can say anything you like. Say anything. Um, I love John Cusack. <laughs> Don't we all? Regarding say anything. I love um, Joan Cusack. I wanted to say that. Who doesn't? Um, I wanted to say that. Robocop, having been mentioned in our last few episodes, um, Robocop is now 30 years old. Wow. It had its 30th birthday on the day of this recording. No way. Yeah. Oh. So happy birthday to Robocop. Happy birthday, Robocop. I hope someone bought you a present that cost more than a dollar. <laughs> if you ever get the chance to buy Robocop for a dollar, definitely shout, I'd buy that for a dollar as you do it. Yeah, and video it and send it to us. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, it, it really is an excellent If you ever have thought. the chance to watch Robocop. It's great. It's great. Watch Robocop. What you should do is you should watch Robocop and you should watch Marie Antoinette. Yeah, that's your that's your homework this week. I think I saw RoboCop in my teens around the same time that I think we were watching a lot of Tarantino as well. And I remember, like, I think a lot of my mates thought it was cheesy and cheap and stupid. And I was like, "You guys have got no fucking idea. This is gold." Yeah, RoboCop is much more clever than anything Quentin Tarantino has ever done. Yeah, and it's genuinely really funny. And it also includes it also includes a robot cop shooting people in the dick and i cannot stress this enough people <laughs> he shoots people in the dick and he's a robot yeah and it's an incredibly intelligent movie yeah it is um, great one thing that's interesting is that robocop 2 um is generally seen as a bad movie and it kind of is a bad movie i don't believe i've um, seen it but it's di- it's directed by the guy who directed um the empire strikes back irving kershner oh. um and the story and screenplay were written by Frank Miller, mm-hmm. the acclaimed comic book. The comic book creator. Um, yes, uh, Mister Mister Comic Book, who's done lots of good comic books, also lots of not good comic books over his over his career. Um, but has done some of the most interesting comics in in recent history. Um, and um, and it's almost like a satire of making sequels, RoboCop Two. So they're trying to. They, they're trying to first make Robocop himself more palatable and more marketable so they fill his head with all this kind of additional code and different rules. So in the first movie, Robocop basically has rules that are protect the innocent, uphold the law, the mysterious hidden rule, which eventually comes to the fore as part of the, the movie as it goes on. And obviously the most important rule, shoot criminals in the dick. It's <laughs> um, a good rule. <laughs> And and they start start um, basically increasing the number of rules that he has to follow. So it's like be polite to people, um, help old ladies cross the street, all of this stuff to make him more marketable. And it's almost like movie creation by committee being satirized. And then eventually they create RoboCop two, and 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 the robot is called RoboCop two in it after various very um, failed attempts. Um. And then RoboCop 2 comes out and it goes completely wrong and it decides to go on a rampage, a King Kong style rampage through Detroit, kills loads of people. And then there's a big fight between RoboCop and RoboCop 2 at the end. And yeah, it's, it's, 
it's so it's an interesting movie it's nowhere near as good as the original but it has lots of interesting points to it um that kind of make it worth watching as well it's only really with the third robocop that things start going downhill and that's where they give robocop a jetpack and he fights robot ninjas <laughs> um, robot ninjas sold yeah and it's such a bad it's such a bad movie that um robocop's partner the 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 lady who who played robocop's partner nancy allen who's a really good um really good actress um she said i'm only going to do this film if you kill my character off which they obliged <laughs> and so he didn't have to be in any further robocop movies after that point cool so yeah watch them all i'll have to see two and three at some point yeah, Robocop 3 is a, a diabolical movie. Um, but it does include Rip Torn. Rip Torn is in it. Oh, really? So, you know. Our, fa- our favourite grizzled king. Yeah, yes. Patches O'Houlihan from uh, Dodgeball as well. Yeah. He's uh, he's great. That's a, that's a silly but good film. I like Dodgeball a lot. I think it's underrated. Yeah. Cool. Was that it? Did you have anyway, anything so, else you wanted to talk about? No, that was it. Unless you have anything else to talk cool. about, do you want to? Do you want to? I just have what movie you've got next. I have to say that um, just a quick couple of quick things to follow up. Um, friend of the podcast, Adam Molesky, has tweeted us a picture of the horizon. Um, it's done in a panorama, and I don't know about you, Rob, but it looks pretty flat to me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I saw that. So and I thought, you know what. We've we've talked a lot about flat earth theory on this podcast, but if you go to our timeline and look at this photo, I mean, I think to me, that's just conclusive proof that the earth is flat and we can just shut it all down now. The earth is flat, people. (laughs) It's true. It's true. So thanks, Adam, for proving to us that the earth is flat. Um, My uh, my dad has emailed us. Um, I almost deleted the email because um, I thought it was spam before I realised that it was it was a proper email because he put the in the subject line um all caps just eat pubes app <laughs> So um it's following up through to episode eleven. So obviously we're this is now coming out like two weeks after the episode. But anyway. Hi chaps, just listened to episode eleven, which was a lot of fun but far too pubic ofs couple of points of interest <laughs> so yeah he basically okay he basically just emailed us to to shit on david ike's footballing career but that's fair so rob didn't return to his david ike goalkeeper train of thought sadly ike wasn't actually all that as he only managed 37 appearances for lowly hereford united in divisions three and four so when we said that david ike was a professional footballer i think we're using the term professional loosely um it goes on yeah, to say so, so division three uh Division three is what is now League One for any modern listeners, right? Um, who have tried to keep up with English football as various different um, different sponsorship deals have caused the leagues to change. Right. He goes on to say, "I am also a big fan of David Cross. Tobias Funke in Arrested Development is his greatest work, of course. I agree. The other star of the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret you didn't mention is the wonderful Will Arnett, also a linchpin of Arrested Development. Yeah, Will Arnett is great and continues to do great things, he's, although his current show flaked brilliant. on Netflix I couldn't get into. Have you seen that? I've not seen it, no. I watched the first couple and it seemed a bit a bit dry and a bit drab and a bit like it wasn't really going anywhere, but I've heard that it's, it does get good, so I might need to invest some more time in it. 
Um, he goes on to say, also in the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret is Sharon Horgan, writer and performer of Catastrophe, which is superb, and although from a slightly different world, as it is a sitcom, is really as postmodern, post-neoliberal rom-com as you can get. I don't think anyone around at the moment has the ear for dialogue that she has. Maybe a big boys don't cry special on Catastrophe. Have you seen Catastrophe? No, no, I've not. I've heard very good things about it. It is awesome. I have absolutely howled at moments of it, and I have genuinely cried at some other moments of it as well. It's her and Rob Delaney, and they write it together, um, and the chemistry between them is absolutely unbelievable. They're not dating in real life. They're married to other people, but you could genuinely believe that they were a real couple. Um, but yeah, both their knack for dialogue and for making things really, really good and really real is just really spot on. But real, but really, really funny as well. Um, it, it's one of the funniest realistic comedies that I've ever seen. It's just, it's, oh, it's, it's really, it's really brilliant. So yeah, I, we, I guess we could at some point in the future talk about a whole series, but it feels like it's a difficult thing to cover on a podcast compared to a film. But it's something to think about. Yeah, maybe if we had the chance to um, had the chance to watch a, which of like the first season of it or something like that. Yeah, or we chose a show that we were both very very familiar with. Yeah, and then he just goes on to one final thing. Another request I would make, which is closer to the true ethos of Big Boys Don't Cry, is for you to put Coming to America on the list. It is unusual as it is an '80s black rom com. Keep up the good work. So I'm going to jump straight in and say I'm going to pick that as my next film because I've never seen it, never heard of it, and it sounds good. 80s black oh, cool, okay, yeah, I've sold. I've seen Coming to America, so yeah. Have you? Sweet. Yes. Cool. Uh, Eddie Murphy action. Yeah, I think that's quite a big Eddie Murphy fan, and I, I like Eddie Murphy a lot as well. If you look at his um, his stand-up from the 80s, it's always really, really funny as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, I remember watching some of that. Cool. So yeah, um, next one's going to be coming to America. All right. It's good. Can't wait. Good choice. So yeah, this has been the Big Boys Don't Cry podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really, really appreciate it. We always love to hear from you. We're on Twitter at Big Boys Don't Pod, um, and you can email us at Big Boys Don't Cry Podcast at gmail Keep listening. Keep subscribing. Keep giving us the the reviews on. Apple Podcasts. No, it's no longer called iTunes. Apparently, it's now called Apple Podcasts, or at least that's what everyone's been saying on the podcasts that I listen to. So, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, it'd be very much appreciated. And share it with your friends. Share the love. Yes, please do. Cool. And you'll hear us next week. Where we'll talk about coming to America. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye.